So in today's text, we're promised a seeing, and not just any mere seeing, but rather a seeing of greater things. Today's text promises us the meaning of Christmas. Blessed, unreformed, and Arminian Charles Wesley once penned these lyrics. Hark the herald angels singers reconcile. Joyful all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. With angelic hosts proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. But that blessed saint wrote more than this. He also wrote another verse. Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. What glimpse of glory Wesley must have gleaned in the face of Christ in order to pen out such beautiful truths of our Savior Jesus. In today's text, we're promised, like John Wesley must have seen, a seeing of greater things. And in seeing these greater things, it is my hope that like our glorified brother Charles, we will have words of fiery worship engraved upon our hearts, seeking for every opportunity to proceed from our mouths to the ears of mankind, floating upward as a sweet incense of worship to none other than God himself. So our aim is worship. So you can take that to the bank because I didn't promise a seeing of greater things. Jesus is the one who is promising a seeing of greater things. Jesus, the Lord of Christmas, has come in the flesh to give us a vision of God's glory. I pray along with another long gone to glory brother, John Calvin, this, our heavenly father will reveal his majesty in the gospel and lift reverence for Scripture beyond the realm of controversy for us all today. So may uh, may we be, as the late saint Dr. John Owen says, a people who see Jesus as precious. For as we'll see in our text today, all the hope of our faith is in seeing the glory of God in Jesus Christ. If Jesus is not precious to us, then we are more likely perishing than living. So our first point, Our first point from John chapter 1, verses 45 and 46 is this. Come and see for yourselves remedy. Come and see. God writes through John, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said, Come and see. So previously, uh, right before this, this section of Scripture, Philip is called by Jesus to follow him. He literally says, follow me, and Philip follows him. Um, and so uh, Nathaniel, so Philip's called to follow him, and then Philip's faith is rooted in, notice what he says to Nathaniel. He says, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. Philip's faith is rooted in what Scripture has predicted about the coming Messiah, He has found Jesus to be that person. This is perhaps even an appeal to Deuteronomy 18, where Moses promises a greater prophet than Moses to come. It's also likely alluding to the various messianic promises scattered throughout the prophets. So as we will see later, likely prophecies concerning the seed of Abraham and the seed of David in particular. Philip has seen some good things already in Scripture coming true 
and, it, and put on full display in the person of Jesus. So it was a no-brainer for him to answer the call to follow him. At this point, I might ask us, why are you following Jesus? Why are we following Jesus? What is our faith standing on? What have you seen in the person of Christ? Is your faith strengthened by the testimony of God in Scripture as Philip here is? Are we, are we a people who say, come and see the one we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote? So Philip's faith in Christ, uh, was he was one from whom Moses and the prophets wrote. It's excited him. And notice what he does when he's excited. He immediately goes to his friend Nathaniel to tell him. And that's what happens when our faith is rooted in Christ. We get excited about what we see in the person of Christ. And we go and we tell others about him. Seeing God's glory and truth in Jesus Christ is actually the fuel of evangelism and discipleship. He wouldn't have any reason to go find Nathaniel. One wonders why we might struggle so much with, to get serious with one another in discipleship or serious with one another in evangelism. And it could be perhaps that our glimpse of God's glory in Christ is smaller than our fear of man. Our glimpse of God's glory in Christ is smaller than our fear of man. We shall never speak of Christ with conviction before ourselves and before others if we don't first see as Philip sees and believe as Philip believes. We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. As uh, Pastor Vody Bauckham says often, and we've quoted it here often, if you can't say amen, say ouch, right? Our faith is the struggle to see Christ and to see him for who he is and to savor God in all his holiness and in all his fullness. For in him, as Colossians says, for in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So finally, we have our invitation given by Philip through the words penned by John, inspired by God. Nathaniel doubts his friend saying, can anything good come from Nazareth? And oh, there are very few statements that can be more wrong than this one. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? How about God in the flesh, the source of good itself? With Jesus coming out of Nazareth, it might be more true to ask, can anything evil come out of Nazareth than it is to say, can anything good come? But fortunately for Nathaniel and for us, Philip brushes this comment aside and he says, come and see. Come and see for yourself. Come, test the Lord. Come, see Jesus. See what you see there. So want to be able to brush aside false teaching and non-helpful statements. Come and see. This glory from Nazareth. Come and see. And oh, what a wondrous sight awaits us here if we do come and see Christ. John Owen tells us that the glory in Christ is so much greater than the glory of creation. He says it this way. The revelation made of Christ in the blessed gospel is far more excellent, more glorious, and more filled with the rays of divine wisdom and goodness than the whole creation. So think of the greatest sight, right? The greatest sight that you've ever visited. Maybe it's the deepness of the Grand Canyon, the heights of Mount Everest. Probably not many of us have climbed to the top of Mount Everest, uh, if any of us. The waves of the ocean, the rushing of the waterfalls of the Niagara uh, waterfalls, right? All the the great creation uh, sights that you can see. Christ is greater still. He is fairest Lord Jesus. And this text demands of us, in our first point, 
that we are to come and see. Christ is saying, come and look at me and see what you see. So our second point is going to come from verses 47 through 48. And it's this. What does Jesus see when he looks at you? What does Jesus see when he looks at you? God continues writing through John, verse 47. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. O precious prerogatives, and out of sight of Christ. Here we're thinking the priority was on Nathanael to seek out of sight of Christ. Come and see, Nathanael. How many times, dear believers, dear family of God, do we think to ourselves, I need to do something in order to be better? Legalism and faith. That understanding of this statement hangs the balance, right, between legalism and faith. Legalism aims at, like uh, Pastor David was saying last week, legalism aims at feeling better about ourselves and our status before God by how good our works and words have recently been. Faith channels the strength of God himself to work in us and through us to accomplish sanctification and obedience to Christ. So here we thought Nathaniel was going to get a glimpse of Christ to judge him, but in the very next verse, it isn't Nathaniel who finds the Christ to look over him, but rather it is Christ himself who sees Nathaniel coming to him. Jesus initiates Nathaniel because he is the good shepherd. He doesn't wait for the sheep to get to him. He seeks out the sheep. Jesus says, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Here's our first but not last allusion to the deceitful patriarch Jacob later to be renamed Israel in Scripture. So Jacob was, if you remember correctly, it was a a twin brother, right? Um, Esau came out first. And so Esau had the birthright and the the blessing right promised to him. Uh, But through uh, various times, like, for instance, uh, uh, Esau being really hungry and he needed some stew and Jacob was making some stew and he was like, I'll give you the stew for your birthright. And Esau's like, okay. And so he gives him the stew and he gets his birthright. And then later on, he dresses up like Esau And he deceives his own father into blessing him with the blessing of the firstborn. And so Jacob is known as being deceitful. And here already Christ is alluding to it by calling Nathanael, truly, this is an Israelite in, in who there is no deceit. That word indeed is literally the Greek word for truly. So truly, this is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, a.k.a. He's not like Jacob. And we'll get to that a little bit later. Nathaniel responds to Jesus in likely a combination of amazement and skepticism. He says, how do you know me? If only he knew the half of it. You might imagine the thoughts flashing through the mind of the Savior to this question. How do I know you? For starters, you were created in my image. You were made through me. How do I know you? I numbered the hairs on your head, and I've named every single star And I provide food for even the birds of the sky. How do I know you? At this very moment, I'm upholding you by the word of my power. If Nathaniel only knew the half of it, how amazed he would be. Any doubt would melt away as snow in South Carolina if we get some. 
And he would bow at the feet of his Lord and worship Jesus. Jesus, however, replies in another way, no less supernatural, saying, how do I know you? Well, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Well, there's the half of it. Before Philip even traveled to Jesus, Jesus saw him under the fig tree. Now, the text's emphasis here is on the action and words of Jesus and not necessarily what Nathaniel was doing under a fig tree. Nevertheless, I think it's, it's a beneficial to speculate a bit and give, give a little bit of background here. Uh, D.A. Carson points out that the fig tree is a symbol oftentimes in the Old Testament for home or prosperity. He lists off uh, chapters like 1 Kings, uh, 1 Kings 4, Isaiah 36, Zechariah 3. However, more helpful, I think, is some of the early Jewish rabbis as a place for meditation on God's word and for prayer. And so likely what Nathaniel's doing under the fig tree is he's praying to God and he's even perhaps meditating on a passage of scripture. Perhaps, this is just speculation, perhaps even meditating on the story of Jacob in Genesis 27 and 28 since he asked Jesus, how do you know me? in response to Jesus making a statement that he, that he saw him, that he's nothing like Jacob and he saw him under the fig tree. So more importantly than what, J, what Nathaniel was doing is what Jesus said, I saw you. Again, the precious prerogative of God is that before you see him, he sees you. What a terrifying and yet simultaneously thrilling prospect. Jesus sees me uh, every day. He sees me in the everyday happenings of life. He sees me when I'm reading his word, when I'm praying to him in the morning. He sees me when I'm loving my brother or my sister in Christ. He sees me when I'm hard working at my job. He sees me when I'm praying with friends and family over a meal. He sees me when I'm in the midst of my sin, when I'm at my family or when I'm rejecting my friends. He sees me at the best frame of my heart and also in the worst frame. He sees my Bible worn from so much study that it's falling apart. And he sees me when my Bible is, as Spurgeon says, there's enough dust enough, or sorry, there's dust enough on some of your Bibles to write damnation with your fingers. On the mountaintop of obedience or in the cesspool of sinful slop, Jesus sees me. He is the Lord of Psalm 139, 1-4. O Lord, you have searched me and known me, You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Terrifying and thrilling. The Lord Jesus knows me. He knows you. But don't miss the beginning. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him, and Jesus initiated. He came. He knows you, and even now he's saying to you, I see you and know you, and still I call you to follow me and come and see. So dusty damnation or tear-stained Bible pages of study, he whispers through this text to your heart, even now, follow me, come and see. And so our third point comes from verse 39. A seeing of Christ should lead to a confession of truth. A seeing of Christ should lead us to a confession of truth. And this is verse 49. So God continues through John, verse 49. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, 
You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. The omniscience of God revealed in the flesh of Christ changed to Nathaniel's tune immediately. He saw a glimpse of God in Jesus. He saw the supernatural knowledge that could not possibly belong to any man unless God himself revealed it. Jesus knew Nathaniel, and that was impossible for only God. Only God could know, truly, Nathaniel. So just marvel at this for a second. It took Jesus only 19 words in the Greek to change Nathaniel from saying, can anything good come from Nazareth to, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus did that in 19 words. Here we have some of our first names given to Jesus. And in and, and Christmas, we're, like, we're focusing on these names, right? What do these names reveal to us about the God-made flesh, the Lord of Christmas? So he's going to give us three names through the mouth of Nathaniel. A little glimpse of God in the face of Christ has quickened immediately the theology and worship of Nathaniel. And so he says this, the first name is Rabbi. He calls the Lord Rabbi. This is, this is a lot more respectful of approach than how can anything good come from Nazareth? Or just the plain, how do you know me? He didn't say, Rabbi, how do you know me? He just said, how, how do you know me? He treated Jesus like a mere, just common person. Uh, he didn't give him any titles. But now he's calling him Rabbi. Jesus is the only real teacher. That's what Rabbi means. It means teacher. What's his subject? It's none other than the nature and persons of God himself. He has come to earth to teach us of who God is and what he is like. Nathaniel, do we let him teach us or do we let culture teach him? Do we receive his commands and seek to obey them like the Great Commission says of true disciples that will grow in our obedience of everything he commanded? Or do we take his commands, water them down, or even pit them against each other so as to remove his yoke of teaching from around our necks? Is our uh, Jesus more like the Aslan of Hollywood Narnia movies, basically a walking, jolly fortune cookie of pithy, wise sayings? Or is he the Aslan of, Narnia, of the Narnia books, a roaring lion that all men must come to and await his response, knowing full well he might devour you or spare you? For he's wild. Does your gospel include the renunciation and condemnation of sin? Or does it not? So I, I kind of want to take here and go off on a little tangent based on the word rabbi, t- teacher, and just point out something that a lot of times, uh, at least in my life, I forget. Teaching or calling Jesus teacher implies that he has teaching, meaning he has a doctrine. He has, and so a lot of times um, we separate, we call Jesus a good teacher, but then we kind of put his commands over here and we ignore them. He's a good teacher. Do we obey his commands? Eh, not really, but he's a good teacher. So doctrine is usually separated from practice. But in biblical teaching, it, it teaches that biblical teaching leads to biblical practice. Matthew 28, what is a disciple? A disciple is someone who is growing. We're teaching them to obey all that the Savior commanded. Meaning in discipleship, from this point on until death, I am going to grow in my obedience not just merely understanding the commands of Christ, but I'm going to actually grow in my obedience to the commands of Christ. So another passage in my mind does a, a, a better job at kind of showing this principle than 1 Timothy 1, 8-11. It says this, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. 
Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. End quote. So note that sin is not merely highlighted and condemned by the law, but sin is, as Paul says in 1 Timothy, it's contrary to sound doctrine, which is just the word for teaching, which is what rabbis do. It's contrary to sound teaching, and it's contrary in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the blessed God, brings with it teaching that rebukes and condemns sin. Jesus is called rabbi and teacher by Nathaniel because Jesus has doctrine and teaching to teach us. His teaching tells us that sexual immorality is bad. How often, right, do we, do we watch shows chock full of this very sexual immorality built into the shows themselves, built into the, the major plot points, right? How often do we find uh, addiction to pornography amongst believers? Have we compromised? His teaching tells us that those who, who practice homosexuality are living contrary to the teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, uh, Sam Alberry, uh, who's an unmarried pastor and um, has struggled with same-sex attraction, he writes a wonderful little, it's a very small pamphlet that surveys the Bible's teaching on homosexuality, and it's called, Is, is God Anti-Gay? And Other Questions About Homosexuality, the Bible, and Same-Sex Attraction. In response to, in this book, in response to a common argument that Jesus never specifically condemns homosexuality, uh, Sam Albury points out in Mark 7, 20-23, that in this list of evils that come from inside a person's heart and defile a person, that Jesus mentions adultery, lewdness, and sexual morality, and that this Greek word for sexual morality was a catch-all term for any sexual activity outside of marriage, including any activity of a sexual nature such as lust. Uh, none of Jesus, this is, uh, again, Sam Albury, none of Jesus' hearers would have doubted that his reference to pornea, which is sexual morality, included homosexual behavior. More so, right, Jesus' teaching on marriage is crystal clear. Mark 10, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, which is the Greek word for woman. And the two shall become one flesh. Jesus then gave but one flesh. What therefore God has therefore God is not joined together, let not man unite. Paul's teaching tells us, and don't miss this, liars and perjurers do so also in contradiction of the teachings of Christ. That note here again, and this is a, a big problem that sometimes we we do as Christians. We we take one sin and we make it the, the abomination of the world. And then we take another sin and we make it respectable. Um, and, and note here that Paul puts lying in the same list as murder, sexual immorality, homosexuality. And, it, and on top of that, he says anything else that's contrary to sound doctrine. That's aka any other sin you can possibly think of belongs in this list. And so we need to be careful to not elevate some sins above other sins. But at the same time, we need to be careful that we don't become acceptant of sin itself. Paul tells us here also 
that enslavers do so in blatant contradiction to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Enslavers is the word for, uh, it's the Greek word for those who catch men and women and sell them into slavery. We could, we could, we could say a lot about Europe, right? And United, the history of the United States, which it took us so long to finally condemn slavery. We obviously are still feeling some of the after effects of this blatant disobedience. How sad it is to know that many brothers and sisters in the church stood up for the practice of enslaving and slavery, or at least didn't preach against it, living in contradiction, as Paul says here, to the sound doctrine of the gospel. The sound doctrine of the gospel. So we are quick to make big deals about some sins and have others as respectable. But Paul tells us that all sin is contrary to sound teaching according to the gospel of the glory of God. This doesn't mean we shouldn't make a big deal about uh, we shouldn't make a big deal about enslavers and homosexuality. It just means no sin should be respectable in the church of God because it's contrary to our rabbi who has teaching. We should make a big deal about any sin because discipleship, which is this, growing in obedience to Jesus, everything that he has commanded, is the duty of every follower of Christ. And so we should not catch ourselves on the sideline giving approval to what the Savior doesn't approve of, or even doing what the Savior doesn't approve of. Now, again, he knows you, he sees you, he saw Nathaniel, and his call's the same. Come and see. Come and see. He's the same Christ who whispers to us in the midst of our sin, follow me, come and see. So what other names does Nathaniel give Jesus? He calls him the Son of God and the King of God. Of Israel, So he's our teacher, which means he has teaching. He's the son of God and the king of Israel. This title, son of God, ties him again to Jacob. Jacob's name becomes Israel. And uh, Israel, the people from Jacob, are often called throughout Scripture the son of God. Two examples of Israel being called the son of God. Uh, Exodus 4, 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord... Israel is my firstborn son. Hosea 11.1, 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The last one literally is a prophecy in the prophets about Jesus. Uh, we have found, again, we can remind ourselves, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets, century Judaism. And it, it harkens back to the covenant that God made with David that he would have an offspring, a son that would sit on the throne and rule forever. And so to call Jesus the King of Israel, to call him the Son of God, you are literally confessing with your mouth that you believe he is the Christ, the Messiah. Um, That's what's going on here. So here with this idea of Jesus being the King, we should worship the Christ of Psalm 2, which says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Talking about false rebellious kings. Then he will speak to them in wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. And rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. 
For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So don't lose sight of the fact that Jesus forever changed and put Nathanael on a path toward glory with just 19 words. And Jesus can do the same for any one of us with just 19 words. Jesus is the holy teacher who brings holy teaching. Jesus is the true Son of God whom the Father confesses at his baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And Jesus is the true King of Israel who will rule all the ends of the earth. Kiss him unless you perish in the broad way. Take refuge in him and be blessed. So our fourth point is this this promise of seeing. Our fourth point comes from verse 50. Jesus promises a seeing of greater things. God writes through John in verse 50, Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Nathanael has only begun to ascend the ladder of Jacob. You call me teacher, you call me son of God and king of Israel, you will see greater things than these. You will see greater examples of the knowledge and power of God than these, this measly revelation that I saw you under a fig tree. Uh, you'll, your, your faith rests currently, right? Nathaniel's faith rests currently in a small miracle done by Christ. But Philip's faith was much sure because it rested in the promises of Moses and Scripture and the, the prophets. But Nathaniel's faith will have so much more in just a span of three years, so much more to rest on than this mere expression of Jesus' supernatural knowledge. And so it's my attempt here to just kind of scratch at these greater things that Jesus promises. So we're just going to kind of trace them through the book of John. What, what does Jesus show to his disciples through the book of John? So follow Jesus, dear believer, and you're promised a seeing of greater things. Come see the Word who was in the beginning, the Word who was with God and who was God. Come see this Word made flesh and tabernacle among us, John 1.14. You'll see a man whom the presence of God dwells. You'll see a Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You'll see the Day of Atonement fulfilled as our sins, including the sinful blind spots we still may have today, God, in our stead. You will see yet greater things. You will see water made into wine by the mere words of Jesus. And not just any wine, the best wine of the wedding. You'll see lepers healed of leprosy. And make no mistake, dear believer, Jesus touched lepers. He came to them in the midst of their sickness and He healed them. He will touch you in your leprosy for He holds the keys of death. He is the resurrection and the life. You'll see greater the, the great physician who not only diagnoses your body and your soul's disease but has the power to heal them and by His stripes you will be healed. Yet still you will see greater things. You will see a man who claims to be the good shepherd and who will not lose a single sheep given to him from his father above. Not only that, he is the very gate the sheep shall enter by. You will see a man who claims to be the bread of God come down from heaven in whom all the hungers of our souls and bodies will ever be satisfied. You'll see the man who is the well of living water who quenches our eternal thirst. Behold the great Sabbath rest himself in the person of Jesus. Here is the forgiveness of your sins, yet you will still see greater things. Here's the foundation upon which unity can be obtained and maintained for eternity. 
you will see him cry out to Lazarus after four days of being dead. And as the King James Version states, which is my favorite here, he stinketh. You will see him cry out to Lazarus and bring him back to life by the power of his words. You will see a man sweating blood in prayer as he wrestles with the same weighty questions Adam didn't wrestle with in the original garden. Namely, shall I obey God or shall I not? He will struggle mightily in prayer in the face of his father's wrath for our sins. And he will receive the strength he needs to obey God. Unlike Peter in the very same garden who falls asleep three times only to go on later to deny the Lord three times. He's a, uh, you'll see this. Come see a man arrested for doing good. Good has come out of Nazareth and now he is in shackles. Proceeded before false judges and kings who refuse to kiss the son. And thus they will be smashed in wrath if they don't turn and repent. Behold, the truth himself now called a liar, made fun of, mocked, yet you will still see greater things. Behold, his brow receives the crown made of thorns, crowned with the very curse we earned by our sin. For in Genesis 3, it says the ground will bear thorns and thistles. And now here is our Savior crowned with a crown made of thorns. Yet still you will see greater things. Behold him flogged over and over again. With each stripe, more healing brought to the very souls of his enemies. Behold the nails that pierce the hands and feet of God made flesh. See the Son pronounce forgiveness to his enemies in the midst of his suffering. Yet still you will see greater things. See the Son promise paradise to the thief on the cross who believed. See the Son cry out, Psalm 22.1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet we will see greater things. Finally, see the Son cry out one mere word in the Greek. It is finished. And as Spurgeon says, it's a mere drop of language with an ocean of meaning. Yet still you will see greater things. Behold him taken down from the cross and put into a newly cut out tomb. Yet still we'll see greater things. On the third day, see the Son of God defeat death for good as he resurrects. See the Son of God ascend to the right hand of God. See him send the Spirit to his church, yet you will see greater things. One day we shall see him come again, and yet you will see greater things. Have you seen greater things? If you have, then why even now? Even now, let's lift our hearts to him in thanksgiving and in worship and in song. Why are we bogged down in the weariness that the weight of life brings? Give thanks to him, Remedy, or I promise you the rocks will in our place. Our fifth point is the greatest thing. So we're promised greater things. What is the greatest thing we will see in Christ? Our fifth point is this. God is the greatest thing promised to us in Christ that we shall see. And this is verse 51. God writes, finishes through John, verse 51. He said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, end quote. Before we discuss, the, I want to point out one thing in the text that should make your hearts here just leap for joy and be filled with anticipation. Look at the word you in verse 51. There's two times where it shows up. It is plural. He's no longer just talking to Nathaniel alone. 
He's talking to everyone who calls the name of Christ, who says he's the King of Israel, the Son of God, the Rabbi. Truly, truly, I say to you all, you all will see heaven opened. John is trying to be very clear here. The promise made to Nathaniel of greater things is not just for Nathaniel, but it is for anyone who would call upon the name of Christ in faith and follow the Messiah in growing obedience to everything he's commanded. So what's this greatest thing? You all will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The greatest thing promised to the followers of Jesus is that they will see heaven opened. Our final Jacob illusion is now brought to fruition. Jesus here is quoting Genesis 28, verse 12, which says this, and he, talking about Jacob, he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached to the heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Jesus here is making the claim to be the ladder of Jacob, and even more so, to be the truer, greater Jacob. So Genesis 28, that same story continues right afterwards. And behold, the Lord stood above it, or literally beside him, and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you will go. And at this point, Jacob wakes up from this dream. And he names the place Bethel, which means the house of God. What exactly is Jesus' claim here? He claims to be the truer and better Jacob, who's renamed Israel, the truer and better Bethel, the house where God resides, and the truer and better ladder between the heavens and the earth. Jesus is the one through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed, which is a promise made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12. So what exactly is this blessing? Again, what is the greatest thing promised by Christ? It's found in Genesis 28, 13. And behold, or quite literally, and see, the Lord, Yahweh, literally is the word Yahweh, the Lord stood above him. Jesus promises that if we stick with him, we will see God. In fact, this is the whole point of all the greater things that we talked about. All the greater things. The entirety of Jesus' ministry is summed up with this. He has come to allow us to see God. He saves us so that we might be brought to God. Peter says it this way. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. John Piper said it this way in God is the Gospel. Uh, Kind of a lengthy quote, but worth it. The ultimate good of the Gospel is seeing and savoring the beauty and value of God. God's wrath and our sin obstruct that vision and that pleasure. You can't see and savor God as supreme, supremely satisfying while you are full of rebellion against Him and He is full of wrath against your sin. The, The removal of this wrath And this rebellion is what the gospel is for. The ultimate aim of the gospel is the display of God's glory and the removal of every obstacle to our seeing it and savoring it as the highest treasure. He continues, Behold your God is the most gracious command and the best gift of the gospel. 
end quote. Jesus, uh, you know, a lot of times, like, we, we stress justification by faith, right? Uh, we believe in the gospel, and that makes us right before God. It, it literally gives us the righteousness of Jesus is given to us by faith, and we now stand before God as righteous. We stress that sometimes so much to where we don't let it lead us to where it's pointing. The whole point of justification by faith, that we can stand righteously before God, is that we can stand before God. We can see his beauty and his glory and not be destroyed. Jesus promises us a continual seeing of God that leads to his glory and our joy. Jesus is the true and greater Israel. And Israel, the name Israel means, quite literally in the Hebrew, the man who sees God. And we might also add, Jesus is the man who shows God. So in conclusion to our text, I just want to ask one question and give two commands from Scripture. My one question is this, have you climbed Jacob's ladder? Have you climbed Jacob's ladder? It begins with the earthly and perhaps even skeptical thoughts of Christ. Can anything good come from Nazareth, said Nathaniel. This man came to Jesus by night. That was spoken of Nicodemus. The Samaritan woman at the well said, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Right? He's just a Jew. Or perhaps it's the confession of the freshly healed, no longer blind man of John 9, right? Who says, he's a prophet. He's at least a prophet. Or maybe it's doubting Thomas. Unless I see in the hands the mark of the nails and the place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. All caught up almost even stumbling on the stumbling block of Jesus' humanity, his death, his flesh, his blood, all caught up, just a, a man with armpits, born of a woman, stinks like the rest of us, sleeps like the rest of us, and yet each climbed Jacob's ladder, and they saw God. Nathaniel confesses, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. Nicodemus in John chapter 20, or actually it's 19, becomes unceremonially unclean by helping Jesus' dead body off the cross. He spends a fortune on the, the spices used to anoint his body for burial. He was disqualified as a teacher of Israel. He's disqualified from participating in the Passover feast, which is the most important feast in Judaism at this time. And what disqualified him? He exchanged the shadow for the substance. The Passover feast for the Passover lamb himself. He climbed the ladder. The Samaritan woman, she received the saying from Jesus, I who speak to you am he in regards to the Christ. He is the Christ. But quite literally, Jesus says, he uses the word I am that John uses over and over and over again, signifying that Jesus is Yahweh because that's what it means. It means I am. And she says that she leaves her, her, her pot that she was getting water and she leaves it and she goes out into the town and she immediately proclaims to everyone, come see this man who told, who told me everything I'd ever done. Could this man be the Christ? She climbed the ladder. The blind man of John 9 who thinks he's a prophet, he's kicked out of the synagogue by the Pharisees and Jesus uh, found him and told him that he is the son of man that Scripture prophesies about, particularly Daniel chapter 7. The man's response, well, he climbs the ladder and he says, Lord, I believe. And what does he do? And he worshiped. 
He worshipped this man who was just a mere prophet, and now all of a sudden he's worth worshipping. Jesus comes to Thomas, even in his doubts, and offers him to feel the marks of the nails and the hole in the side of his glorified body. He says, behold, behold, you know, we could think of crowning with many crowns. Behold his hands inside, his wounds yet visible above, and beauty glorified. Thomas felt the Lord's humanity and climbed the ladder of Jacob. And this is what Thomas confesses right after he feels those marks. You are the Lord of me and the God of me. He saw God. So may you remedy, treasure Christ, like bring Christ to the lost, like the Samaritan woman. May you worship Christ like the blind man who was healed. And may you confess truth of Christ like Thomas. But the only way that we'll do these things is if we see the greatest thing in the face of Jesus Christ, and that's namely God's glory, God himself. If you've never climbed Jacob's ladder, if you've never seen the kingdom of God, then hear the words of Christ to Nicodemus in John 3, 4. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Which leads us to our two commands. In John 1.45, Philip gives Nathaniel two commands. And upon these two commands hangs all of our hope. It's the only thing we have. Come and see. So I bid us, Remedy Church, to come and see. I bid you, if you've never climbed Jacob's ladder, come and see. If you're climbing it currently, keep coming, keep seeing. Trust in him again or for the first time and let him fill you with a vision of God's glory that will transform you to be more like Jesus Christ. And it will leave you worshiping someone for which eternal days are far too short to sing his praise. Behold your teacher, the Son of God, the King of Israel, the Son of Man, the ever truer house of God, our Bethel. Come and see. Let's pray. Father, um, we wait for you. That's what we're doing. Um, We wait. And we know that Christ is our only hope. And so we come to him and and we ask uh, that we would see. Lord, he came to show uh, no man has seen you face to face but Christ. And he has come to make him known. That's what John 1, 18 says. So I just pray, Lord, today that Jesus, through your word, you would come and make your Father known to us. Uh, We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.